Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or physician and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, DeWalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season three, episode 14 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. We're gonna talk about associates recruiting, onboarding, and developing in this next series. And there's some favorable trends in your favor, obviously, to be redundant, if you are building a group practice. Stick around, I'm gonna dig deep into several of those, give you a couple of things to think about as you start considering what 2023 looks like for you and building out your group with additional talent you know it's going to be a note-taking episode. So get your pad and pen ready for another wonderful cup of that meal of coffee. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports, and I sincerely appreciate you joining me today. I want to give you a couple of things to think about in 2023. We've hosted... um, well, quite a few um, entrepreneurs building group practices for our discovery days uh, over the last probably eight to 10 weeks, even going back to the end of 2022, actually. There were a number of people who wanted to get, a, I guess, a head start on their their planning and their strategy for the coming year and years uh, and have, have come to Charlotte to spend a day with us. Those are always really fun days. It's one-on-one with the client and no two are ever alike. Um, everybody's MO, if you will, is different when they come to spend a day with us. They come with different levels of success and some, you know, challenges, I'll say, uh, different outlooks, different businesses around, uh, different contexts around the businesses they're hoping to develop. Um, and it's always fun to, to dig deep into the questions that people know that they have, but along the way provide I'll say thought-provoking context around things they had not considered yet. So um, that's really the cool aspect of those one-on-one days. And like I say, no two are are alike. Uh, Everybody's got a different business. Everybody's got a different time horizon. uh, And everybody's got a different outlook. The context, the, the common context around those days is building group practices, obviously. And everybody knows that the most fundamental aspect of building a successful group is attracting and retaining associates. Associate turnover is the number one problem of group practices. It has been since we've been in this world uh, six or seven years back now, and it will continue to be moving forward. So today I want to dig a little bit deeper into some of the, I'll say, favorable uh, tailwinds for those of you who are considering uh, building a group practice and and trying to think around the lines of how to solve this uh, this major issue. Certainly for those of you who've already started, you know what I'm talking about here. But before I dig into some of those tailwinds, I want to I want to level set on something. We are really eyes wide open about how challenging 
a group practice can be to build, to operate, and to exit. All right. This is not a journey for the faint of heart. There is no guarantee of success. Uh, and it is going to be incredibly challenging along the way. It's a it's a hard deal. That being said, I think it's something that we want to unpack just a little bit for those that are in the audience that are contemplating building a group. Maybe you've got one or two or three locations and and you want to add more to it or you're not sure if you should or you shouldn't. And I want to give you a couple things to think about first. And that is around your horizon. So if you've got one or two practices uh, successful, however you define success, um, mainly from a cash flow standpoint, typically, you know, if you've got one or two practices and you're three or four or five years from retirement, from hanging it up, you know, taking on a lot of debt um, to, to add two or three or four locations at the tail end, the twilight of your career is probably a pretty risky endeavor, candidly. I don't know that that that's the right thing if you're staring down retirement. I think you're really better off focusing your efforts on planning for the right transition. And when I say the right transition, that's really, you know, it's dependent upon the buyer, but it's also dependent upon the deal structure that serves your purposes. So if you're in that sort of five years or less to retirement, I don't know that taking on a lot of risk to build a group is is in your your you know your best uh, decision making criteria there. That being said, if I'm a successful dentist, one or two locations, and I'm ten to fifteen to twenty years or more ahead of me of working in the profession, I think it's absolutely something I've got to consider, and I'll tell you why. We are in a world of consolidation we are in a world of rising costs particularly wages you've all seen that the ada has done a lot of work on that and i talk about that with every uh prospective client call that i take and everybody i host for those discovery days so the the rising cost environment across the board that we find ourselves in is really unabating and and those that have commanded uh, wage increases that the team, the staff um, are probably not going to give back any of those gains uh, if the overall inflation levels and economic uh, scenarios re uh, recede at all. All right. So you're kind of stuck with that is my point. And wages are your biggest line item on any P&L. And they're for all intents and purposes they're hard to change. I was going to say they're immovable, but they're just, they're hard to change. There are other increase in costs across the board, supply chain driven and otherwise, but that's the cost basis of the business. The top end piece of the business in terms of revenue generation is equally challenging. Not only are we seeing a, a rising cost environment, but we're seeing a declining insurance reimb reimbursement rate environment. And most group practices, not all, but most take insurance reimbursement at some level as part of their payer mix. So as that's declining with increases in costs, that really hits the business owner directly in the wallet. And the reason that this is important is because I've, I have started having more and more conversations 
with what I would call like a mid-career, somebody who's in mid-career point, um, and, and they're not sure if they should build a group or maintain what they have. And it's a really compelling thought exercise to go through. You know, when you look at the success you've you've built up to this point, and and that's basically I'm talking about financial success, and it's usually income driven at this point. If you're mid-career, you have to think about the next 10 to 20 years um, and how confident you are about maintaining that level of income indefinitely. And that income is based off of a controlled expense base and a predictable revenue base. And if the revenue is showing some series of decline and the cost basis is showing some level of increase, your confidence around maintaining that income stream is questionable at best. And again, if you only have five years to go, you can probably weather the storm. But if you're 10 years to 15 years to 20 years or more, I think you have to take uh, a, a more biased look at what your expectations around continuity of income is going to be for that period. And here's where it comes down to where the rubber really meets the road. If you are operating a solo practice or maybe two locations, um, and if your family's level of uh, standard of living is calibrated to the amount of income you're deriving from those businesses, and you feel questionable about the ability to maintain that indefinitely, then then what's the defensive strategy that you're going to deploy to ensure that you can maintain some levels of income? It gets to be much more challenging in a single location or maybe two locations versus what that could look like in multiple locations. Now, for those who've heard us speak from the stage, seen some of the webinars we've done, even a couple of white papers and things to that effect, we all know that as you start to add additional locations, you you suffer some level of an income decline in the short run because you're working yourself out of a clinical role meaning you're you're hiring an associate to pick up some of the clinical work that you do and you're taking on debt to acquire those additional locations so you're not generating as much clinical income that's attributed to you you're paying someone else to do that that's an increase in cost and you also have to pay back the bank on a cash flow basis for the the locations that you've acquired that being said if you acquire practices methodically um, and don't overpay for them, plus you're able to create some level of cost reductions in those businesses or some level of uh, uh, you know revenue generation in those businesses, you can start to turn the corner on any uh, level of income declines in those additional locations. What I mean by that is that you can start to build a buffer around your personal income levels that you need call it passive income at some level, off of multiple locations. And those are usually associate-driven practices. So I think if you're 10 years, 15 years, 20 years out, uh, and you have a long uh, work career ahead of you, you have to consider some level of a group practice, be it two to five locations or more than five locations even, as a defensive mechanism around your personal income needs. And that's a different way of thinking about growth strategy than we typically deploy 
And we are not, we at Polaris, I mean, are not in the business of talking people into building group practices just because everybody else is doing it. I jokingly tell people that if you ask me a question, I can answer almost any question with the answer, it depends, and it truly does. So if you're five years or or less uh, from hanging it up, I don't know that the risk is worth the reward, candidly. But if you are 10 years or more, I think possibly the riskiest position to be in is not doing anything and expecting your personal income level to continue in perpetuity um, as if there are no other uh, exterior forces at, at play here. And I just don't think you have the liberty or the luxury to do that. I think you have to consider uh, what building uh, a group practice could mean for you and your family, not just from an income standpoint, but certainly from a wealth standpoint as well. So I, I kind of preface this episode. I wanted to cover that because it's a contextual thought that it is worth a little bit of time. Um, and, and I've had this conversation with probably about 80% of the people who have come to spend a day with us in Charlotte. We'd love to host you for a day, don't get me wrong, but you don't have to schedule a day in, in Charlotte with me to think through that process on your own. If you want to dig deep, I'd, I'd love to host you. It'd be a fun day together. But I think this is a part of a thought process that you owe it to yourself to consider for those that are 10 years or more um, uh, with a, uh, a work career ahead of them. So if we are going to build a group practice, there are a lot of challenges to it. There are a lot of things to get wrong. Um, and there are a lot of things to solve for. The number one problem in every group practice is obviously uh, in in that attracting and retaining associates. So what are we staring at in the coming years as it relates to a changing workforce and what should we expect? There are a handful of things that the ADA uh, and the ADEA, American Dental Education Association, have talked about in a number of their research pieces over the last few years. I haven't seen the one um, for the state of the profession for 2022 yet. I'm expecting that to come out any time now. But um, some of this information is about a year old, but it's completely relevant and totally appropriate uh, for, for those of us considering building a group practice and how we attract associates. So first things first, changing workforce. Um, we know uh, that there are a lot of young people entering dental school presently, and the the tide is going to shift in terms of those exiting the profession in the next couple of years to those that are starting to enter dental school and, and go through residency, residency and specialty that will be entering the workforce in the coming five to 10 years. The Health Policy Institute, part of the ADA, their research arm, uh, is actually predicting that the number of dentists per capita is going to increase over about the next 15 years from around 61 per 100,000 to about 67 per 100,000 over that 15-year period. That is a pretty big increase. I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but you're talking about almost a 10% increase in the number of dentists in the marketplace. They're going to need places to work. 
They're going to want to become masters at their craft. They're going to want to start to earn income. Uh, they're probably not going to be buying their first or building their first practice immediately out of school or residency. They're going to be looking for a home. So knowing that, what are you doing to prepare yourself and your business to have a place to accommodate them? There's going to be a net increase in the number of dentists between the year 2025 to 2040 uh, of about 10% the way it all plays out. So you're going to have plenty of at-bats. You're going to have plenty of opportunities to hire associates. What are you doing to prepare your business now to get ready for that? Are you going to expand current facilities? Are you going to add additional locations? Uh, what are you doing as it relates to the value proposition on why one of these uh, new grads uh, would want to join your business? Um, you're going to have plenty of at-bats, so prepare for uh, the coming opportunities. Along the same lines, it, it should... Um, not shock anybody when I said earlier that the um, the people coming out of school and residency aren't predisposed to buy their or buy or build their first practice right out of school or even a couple of years into the workforce. And the 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 driver of that is student loan debt. The American Dental Education Association for their graduating class in uh, 2021 stated that 81 percent of of all graduating uh, dentists carried some level of what they call educational debt with them. And for those that did, the average number was almost $305,000. That's general dentistry. That's not specialty. The debt burden of these newly minted dentists that are entering the workforce is staggering. These are people who are hoping to start families. They're hoping to have children. Um, they're hoping to buy their first home. They're hoping to buy a new car um, to replace their old car. Uh, they, they have personal levels of expectation as it relates to both investment and priorities in life. Certainly becoming uh, a professional is one of them, but potentially owning their own practice and owning it outright is not one of them. And, and that counts the same for their ability to buy into a, an existing practice that is has some degree of success. So, and, and by that, I mean a traditional solo practice that might value around a million dollars. If you're expecting a young associate to come in and buy in 50% of that, it's another $500,000 loan that they're taking out. That's just a, a large sum on top of an already heavily burdened, uh, newly minted workforce. So I think the opportunity for for them to carry such a level of debt burden, both personal and now professional, um, but bring it into the workforce to find a great place to, to work, to start to earn some income, to do more complicated and more highly valuable dentistry is critically important. And if you can create that opportunity for them to be part of your business, part of your culture, and potentially even have an ownership stake in it, you're really uh, offering a, a comprehensive solution to them. So understand the debt burden um, that they're carrying and understand the, the limiting factor as it relates to the choices they can make based around all of that. Um, the, 
the next step in this or the the third point here uh is no mystery to people and and it's a logical extrapolation of the first two that i mentioned and that is those that are graduating from dental school what is their state of mind as it relates to predisposition around joining a group practice or a dso uh and when the adea asked that question how many of you are mind ready uh, to join a group practice or DSO. When they asked that question five years ago, the answer was about 12% or about one out of every eight to nine graduating dentists was, was you know, mind ready to, to join an established group. When they asked that question last year or in 2021, the answer was 30%, three out of every 10, a, a number that had jumped 250% from 12% to 30% in only five years. So whether it's the fact that group practices and DSOs are more common than, than our parents' generation of dentists, or maybe it's because of the debt burden, or maybe it's because they want to have some quality of life with without a lot of uh, administrative responsibility beyond just their clinical responsibilities, whatever the driver is, there are a lot of them, they're a heck of a lot more open to it. Uh, and, and I think that gives you a lot more, um, you don't have to spend as much time overcoming, um, you know, the, the value add piece of a group versus a solo practice. And I think they're going to be a lot more of those that are, that are mind ready to join groups. So really a compelling statistic for those thinking about building a group and then trying to answer for themselves the question of how we actually attract and retain associates. And is there some stigma, some specter, something that, that we have to overcome in the recruiting phase? I would argue that a lot of that is is minimum or is much more minimal now than what it has been historically um, uh, in terms of presentation. And that bodes well for all of you who are building group practices. And the last piece here is that when we look at the profession in terms of those that are um, uh, entering their prime earning years, meaning about 30 to 30, 34 years old, these are the people who are are uh, confident dentists. They're several years out of school or residency. They're uh, they're they've become they're starting to become masters at their craft. They've seen a lot of the complicated dental procedures before. They're quick. They're efficient. They have higher case acceptance rates. All that kind of good stuff. These are are people who are entering the prime earning years. And for those that are in the thirty to thirty four year old uh, subset, those that own their own solo practice is down from about 30% a decade ago to about 20% now. So when we think about building a group and attracting and retaining associates, you know, the retaining piece is key. So we don't want to just spend a lot of time chasing our tail, creating a revolving door of associates. That doesn't do anything for our business. I mean, if, if you can attract them, but you can't retain them, have you really solved the problem? I would argue no. But if you can attract them through uh, all of the the you know successful uh, business that you created and the value proposition that is for them on why they should join your group over any other, and you can retain them for the long haul, which typically means some level of an ownership track, then you're building a a self-sustaining business. 
And that's what we're all after. So when we see that more are mind ready to join a group when they're entering the workforce, and for those that have been in the workforce for five to 10 years now, we see them staying in group practices and owning solo practices less often, I think it bodes well for the retention piece of it. So this is a huge concern um, when it comes to group practices. It probably always will be. But what I would tell you is for those that are 10 to 20 years out, uh, call it mid-career, and you got a, a, a long work career ahead of you, um, either because you want to or because you can't afford to retire or you're just you know, in that stage of prime earning years. For those that are one to two locations, I think you owe it to yourself to say, what is the competitive landscape going to look like in another five to 10 years? And can I afford to make the assumption that my personal income level is going to continue unabated into the next decade? I I think that's a risky proposition to 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 keep to only to keep only doing what you're doing now is a risky proposition. And if you're going to build a group, having a solution for associates is critical to it. And and for those who are starting the journey of building a group, you're going to have a ton of at bats to get it right coming up. And this is that compelling point in time where we're not thinking about where the business, where your business is presently or where the industry is presently. We're thinking about where the industry is going to end up in, in five to 10 to 15 years and what your business looks like as a part of that. If you can reconcile those two trains of thought and understand where they intersect, then building a group practice of some size and might becomes much more appealing and probably much more of a defensive strategy as it relates to protecting your family's income. So I, I hope I was able to, to seal that up and kind of come full circle on all of it. But I think based on some of the conversations I've had with different entrepreneurs at different stages of their career, different specialties in different areas of the country, a lot of it tends to come back to this same train of thought. So hopefully you got a lot out of that. Stick around. I'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Thanks, everybody, once again, for joining me on the show today. I hope you found that thought process to, to be somewhat enlightening or at least to give get your wheels turning a little bit. Um, as we wrap up today's show, I uh, wanted to talk about two things really quick. Uh, one, building your enterprise platform, which is the name of the conference that we're hosting down in Fort Lauderdale, May 10th through 12th. Um, many of you have uh, inquired about that, and judging from the the signups, um, this will be a, an event that sells out probably a good bit ahead of time. Uh, at last uh, glance, we are about I think forty people out of a hundred seats and over twenty businesses represented, um, and um, that's a, a faster uptake than what we typically see, which I guess is a good thing. I think the subject matter we might have hit. So for those that are um, uh, considering joining us, I, I hope you will, um, you know, get your calendars synced up and everything, and and move rather quickly on that. 
uh, we're even going to explore possibly expanding it a little bit if the hotel can accommodate. And that's a big if right now. So um, hopefully you can join us. Uh, this is subject matter, like I say, that that we haven't seen at any other conference. And we're really trying to bring a lot of value to those that that want to centralize operations and really build a business for scale. So ought to be pretty fun, ought to be cool, all new content. Um, and Fort Lauderdale in May ain't bad. So please do make an effort to join us. We'll link to it in the show notes. Last thing um, is that I want to share with y'all. Many of you asked me about book recommendations. I guess beyond just you know coffee, <laughs> I've started to, to develop a little bit of a, a reputation for being some aspect of a reader. I do enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy reading a lot of different things and I share some of the uh, pearls of wisdom and good books that I, I read. And I've been on a, uh, a good streak lately as it relates to a handful of books. I'm going to give you two of them um, to consider from an author named Peter Zion, Z-E-I-H-A-N, Peter Zion. If you Google him, he's got a, a YouTube channel, has a lot of videos. You can find him on a lot of podcasts um, uh, and, and some other video interviews and the like. He has written four books over about the last decade. Peter Zion is a geopolitical strategist. I'm going to let that sink in for just a second, because much like many of you, I had no idea what the heck a geopolitical strategist was, did, or how they got paid or anything else till I got turned on to uh, a couple of his books. And he studied, he has a think tank, a research department. Gives a lot of presentations for um, our government agencies, a lot of different uh, private groups, a lot of international agencies. And a lot of what they study is around both geography, demography, and the changing political landscapes. Um, he, the four books he's written started off back in uh, 2013, if I remember correctly. And that first book was called Accidental Superpower. The last book that he wrote that came out last year is called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. There are two other books in, in between that. I read the first one and the last one because these are kind of thick and they're they're lengthy. Um, they're, they're easy reads, but they're just very comprehensive and very thorough. So the first one called Accidental Superpower uh, is about... Um, the world uh, in terms of changing, uh, in terms of geography, and then um, how nation states arose from tribes and everything else built around waterways and subsistence farming and industrialization. He does a lot of historical context in pretty short order about how humanity really came together, uh, cities and states and nations and everything, uh, and, and how all of that evolved over time. I know you're probably thinking like, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Well, the context of the book, Accident Accidental Superpower, is that coming out of World War II, um, the globe was decimated in terms of um, industrial uh, might. It was wrecked from the Second World War, essentially. We, we bombed most of it, right? Um, and the Axis powers were defeated. So coming out of World War II, there was something called the Bretton Woods Agreement, which I had frankly forgotten about. But it was uh, a, a number of, of the allied nations that the United States assembled in uh in vermont or new hampshire i can't remember but in any event um the bretton woods agreements were uh, when everybody came into it they thought that 
the United States was going to dictate to the world treaties. We were going to dictate terms of treaties and tariffs and taxes. We were going to be an occupying power like every other conquering nation had been. Um, and, and we're really going to put our stamp on the world through force and might and through occupation and extracting treaties of conquered lands. And we didn't do any of that. We did the exact opposite. The calculation at the time was that our Navy was still intact and nobody else had one. So we were going to guarantee shipping lanes between nations. Think Barbary pirates going all the way back to the Jeffersonian years. And, um, you know, uh, the, the fact that we haven't seen much piracy on the open seas uh, in recent memory, or at least not at scale for a disruption standpoint. What this And, and the second thing was we were going to open our markets to the world. So if you produce a good or something, you could sell it here in the United States. And it created globalism and global supply chains, which we've all heard a lot about recently uh, coming out of COVID, right? So the interesting thing is when, when Zion walks through all this, it's a lesson in history. It's a lesson in demography. It's a lesson in geography and the changing landscape that's basically guaranteed by the U.S. Navy. And, and when the Soviet Union collapsed, imploded, the Iron Curtain fell, we had something called the peace dividend. For those going back to the 90s might remember this. Uh, and a lot of the presidents of the United States and the leaders of the Western world up to about 1989 had always been focused externally around global threats to the West. And now that was no longer. So we started looking into a lot of our politics turned internal, started withdrawing from the world, you know, uh, the Iraqi invasion and all that kind of stuff, notwithstanding and Afghanistan, notwithstanding. But we really started focusing more on populist um, movements uh, and withdrawing from the world. And now that the Bretton Woods agreements are unraveling, the Navy's coming home. So what does that mean on a, a global level? And it creates a lot of disruption. In the initial book, The Accidental Superpower, Zion talks about Russia invading the Ukraine and invading it in the year 2022. And it's a little bit chilling that he got that right. And I think we're all seeing the output of that. So when he starts talking about what's going to happen in the years to come, that is the last book in the series called The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And this is the one I just finished that talks about what the next 20 to 30 to 50 years is going to look like globally. Um, if, the, if the U.S. Navy comes home and doesn't guarantee shipping lanes, what does that mean on supply chain? We now get everything from all over the place. and we do not, um, uh, you know, do, we, we don't do much on a home front and internally anymore. We rely on the world for that. And when we do, and we can no longer access bauxite for the batteries that go in our electric cars, what does that mean? 
What does it also mean for agriculture and, and farming? How do we how does the world continue to feed itself when that supply chain is is disrupted? So standards of living, um, you know, the, the changing uh, population of the globe, which is now in decline. Uh, what does that mean for for um, superpowers like China? He's not very bullish on that, I'll tell you. I don't want to spoil the the ending of it, but um, you'll quickly come to to learn that he's not very optimistic about the prospects of China and their one-child policy is coming home to roost now. So what does it mean for Russia? What does it mean for Western Europe? Uh, the ability to feed itself, defend itself, and, and really um, keep an economy afloat. What about North America, Central America, and South America? And as we pull the Navy in, the Monroe doctrines and and uh, what we know about protecting our hemisphere uh, really comes to light. And what does it look like from trading partners, Canadian and Mexican, uh, as it relates to the, the United States market? These are two really lengthy books. <laughs> they're they're probably three to five hundred pages. They're thick. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of research. There's some opinions from him. Um, and he kind of calls it like he sees it. Uh, this is not a political book about uh, right versus left, conservative, liberal, Democrat versus Republican or any of that. There's none of that in there, really. Um, and it really gives you a different outlook uh, on the standing of the United States presently and what we have ahead of us. It's not all roses, but we will fare really, really well, according to Zion. And that is dramatically different from a lot of the outlook that you hear from the talking heads on the news and elsewhere. And that's why I wanted to read these books. So I went, in, I went into probably too much detail for you on a podcast, but I wanted to share that because for those of you who are thinking about, you know, the United States is coming upon 250 years uh, in existence and, you know, Rome fell, uh, you know, after about the same period of time and, you know, we, we've got our due coming up and all that there. I don't know that I agree with that anymore. There's there's a different look to it. And Zion is um, uh, really, really interesting. So if you if you find some of that fascinating, uh, again, Peter Zion, Z-E-I-H-A-N. Uh, first book is called The Accidental Superpower, Historical Context. Um, and then uh, The End of the World is Just the Beginning is the the last book. You can read the books two and three in there as well, but I, I kind of skipped over those. Um, but for those of you who are in the audience and you like to read and you're always looking for book recommendations, if you're looking for something a little bit out of the norm, hopefully that will foot the bill for you. I really appreciate every, appreciate everybody joining me on the show today. Hope you found it to be educational content. I really appreciate also the reviews and the ratings that y'all give us and the, the constant compliments on the podcast. It does mean a lot and I'm grateful for it. If you've got questions, feel free to submit them to me directly at parent at polarishealthcarepartners.com. Uh, and if you'd like any other information around uh, building your enterprise platform, uh, conference or what we do here at Polaris. You can find all of that on our website at www.polarishealthcarepartners.com. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.